Would you remain standing? And if you have a Bible with you, open with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some black Bibles around the half walls in this room. You can feel free to get up and grab one of those and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. We'll start reading in verse 19. This is God's word for us this morning. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We pray you would wield your word in our hearts and minds according to your will, according to your power, and for your glory. We pray you'd shape our thinking. We pray, Lord, you would draw, convict, give life, and heal. We pray you'd glorify Christ, who is our Savior, who died in our place and rose on the third day. We meet together in his name today. We have no other hope but him. And we've been singing to you through him, through the only access we have, through the only basis we have to enter into your presence, his blood. We thank you in his name. Amen. You could be seated. Well, most Sundays at Desert Springs, we're working our way through a book of the Bible. And that means that we come to a passage or a chapter with really no other agenda than just to understand it and apply it. We don't begin so much with our needs, our perceived needs, our desires, or our present interests, but simply to, to hear from God and to trust that he feeds us what we need week to week. But maybe once or twice a year, we purposely break from that norm for a couple of weeks uh, to more directly and more precisely talk about direction, about vision as a church, uh, to talk about things of a present need and to talk about a possible solution, that sort of thing. And you notice in the passage we just read that verse 24 says that we should consider how to stir up love and good works. That presupposes that the how is not in the Bible, but the church here and written to by the name of Hebrews and our church and every other Christian church is supposed to figure some things out. We're supposed to spend some time considering hows every now and then. You see, the Bible gives us doctrine and it gives us principles of practice for doing church, but there are many details about doing church that God's word does not prescribe for us. So God's word doesn't tell us how big this church should be, 
doesn't tell us when to plant a church or how to plant a church exactly. It doesn't tell us what time on Sunday to meet. It doesn't tell us how many elders we should have, just that they should be plural. It doesn't prescribe a certain length of sermon. On and on the list could go. Membership classes aren't in the Bible. Community groups, as such, are not in the Bible. And yet, we think these are good things. The Bible gives us doctrine and principles of practice. And beyond these, apparently, the Lord Jesus expects us to consider how. Consider how. We're going to do that this morning and next Sunday. Today and next Sunday, we're going to talk about a fresh strategy for optimizing Sunday mornings at Desert Springs Church. Over the years, our elders and staff have occasionally wrestled with a few things related to Sunday morning. One, we've encouraged families to be together in corporate worship. By corporate worship, I mean this meeting. I mean our Lord's Supper service that we do once a month usually on a Wednesday. Corporate worship, we've encouraged children at a relatively young age and through their growing up years to be with mom and dad on Sunday morning, not just in a children's ministry or a youth group. That's had varying success and acceptance and that sort of thing, and that's fine, but we're always trying to figure out a better way of encouraging that. Secondly, we've wrestled with the need to better utilize Sunday morning for adult discipleship. We don't have a robust Sunday school program for adults like a lot of churches do. Largely, that's because of space. We just don't have classroom space around here. And so we've offered uh, short courses, we've called them, sometimes three weeks long or six weeks long. It covers a topic, but they've been intermittent. They come and go. There's a season of short courses. Maybe one ends within three weeks and then another one doesn't start up for a few. And all that has made it difficult for families with young kids to do both children's ministry for their kids and corporate worship together as a family, which we encourage. We want both. Thirdly, we've wrestled with wanting wanting to see a more robust commitment to serving the needs of Sunday morning. Serving. By serving, I mean those things that go on outside of this room that make this whole thing happen on a Sunday morning. Uh, children's ministry and nursery. There's a safety team, hospitality, greeters, uh, ushers, tech people. All this is going on around on a Sunday morning, and so many of you serve sacrificially on Sunday morning in such a great way. But many don't. And we want to encourage that more, partly so that we don't have to do announcements quite as much as we do. Uh, Partly so we don't have to plead when we need people to jump in and fill a spot. Now, to be honest, for the most part, we've thought about those needs independently of each other over the years. But more recently, we think we've seen a better strategy to strengthen each of those three things by putting them together and seeing them as a whole. That's what we're going to talk about over this week and next Sunday. Three things, corporate worship, that's this Sunday. Then next week we'll talk about adult discipleship and serving alongside each other there. Again, this will be more practical and more specific, more of how to, more of consider how, like it says in verse 24, than perhaps what we're usually used to here. But this week as we consider corporate worship, let's start with the biblical instruction 
on God's presence. We saw that in Hebrews 10. We read it already. Biblical instruction on God's presence or worship. We see first the confidence to enter God's presence. There's the confidence in verse 19, 20, and 21. We're given a confidence to enter into God's presence. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, you have to understand, these, are load, these verses are loaded with Old Testament imagery. It's contrasting the old with the new. Before Jesus, we call that the old covenant. Since Jesus has come, he's brought in a new and better covenant. And so using Old Testament imagery here, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting the old with the new and showing us the better that is the new. Look back to chapter 9 with me. Chapter 9 will explain this contrast that's going on here. And it will explain the Old Testament imagery that maybe you're not used to if you're not that familiar with the Old Testament. You see in chapter 9, verse 1, we'll just read several sections here of this chapter. It says, now even the first covenant or old covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness for a tent, later a a temple, was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table, the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Skip to verse 11. Here's the contrast. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And now verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, that's what Hebrews 10 is talking about with that language of entering the holy places. Jesus entered not a tent's holy of holies or a temple's holy of holies, but he entered heaven's tent and tabernacle and and temple with a sacrifice of himself, his own blood. 
And now we can have confidence to enter the holy places. We, we sinners, not priests, not professional priests anyway, even in the old covenant, all the priests, of all of them, only one could enter the holy of holies. Now we Christians can enter in because of this new and living way. We can have confidence to enter in. If anyone but the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant, they would have been killed. If Aaron, the high priest, had entered in without blood, he would have been killed. If he would have entered on a different day than the Day of Atonement, he would have been killed. You cannot enter. So much of the Old Covenant sent this message. You cannot enter. You cannot come. You cannot draw near. Wasn't that what Sinai was all about? There, as God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai shook. It quaked with thunder and lightning and clouds. And God said to Moses, tell the people, don't draw near or you will die. Do not touch this mountain or you will be killed. But now, through the blood of Christ, through the new and living way, through the curtain of his flesh. Remember in Luke 23, there at the death of Jesus, we're told that the curtain of the temple that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple was what? Torn in two. It was signifying it's now open. God's presence is open because of Christ and only because of Christ. And we want his presence, right? Psalm 1611 says that it's in his presence that there's the fullness of joy. It's at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. But we sinners cannot just enter into his presence. Psalm 24 says, who can ascend God's hill? Well, you got to have clean hands, a pure heart, and no deceit in your tongue. And we all fail that test. Except Jesus, he was pure and clean. He was true. And he was a sacrifice. Do you know that sacrifice? You have him as your high priest. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, do you have him as your priest, as your sacrifice, as your salvation? I hope so. Christian, we have great confidence to enter into God's most intimate presence. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Secondly, though, we see the call to enter God's presence together. We have the confidence. We also have a call. You notice verses 19 to 21 had the word since two times. Since we have, so it sets up bases, foundations, what we call sometimes indicatives or truths that we have, promises that are ours. But then verses 22 to 25 give us three implications of those bases or foundations. The implications are marked out with that phrase, let us. You see the beginning of verse 22, let us. And then 23, let us. And then verse 24, let us. The first one is, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed and washed with pure water. It doesn't mean our literal bodies. The writer of Hebrews is continuing this Old Testament imagery 
And like Old Testament priests would have to have their bodies cleansed before they would do their priestly work or enter into God's presence, so much more through the blood of Christ, our bodies, our our whole beings, we could say, have been washed clean. We've been cleansed. We've been sprinkled. And so we have full assurance in and through faith. We can draw near. We have entered the holies, and we can still draw near. Both are true. We'll see that more in just a bit. The second let us, not let us, what you eat, but let us, is hold fast the confession. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This book of Hebrews was written for this kind of person in mind. Those who were around a lot of people who professed Christ at one time, but then left it. These people had seen a lot of people embrace Christ. They they left their Jewish faith, you could say, or they realized Christ as the culmination of their Jewish faith, and, and yet eventually went back to it. They left Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is writing with warnings and cautions and and pleading to persevere and keep believing. Don't neglect this thing. Don't forget this thing. Don't give up on this. Don't turn to another gospel. Don't stop holding fast the confession of the gospel that you have. Many have. Many have. But don't give up on it precisely because he who promised is faithful. Because the promise is sure, you can keep on believing. And that's, that's a call. It's a, a responsibility. You must keep on believing. Let us hold fast the confession of the gospel. Let us stir up one another. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now this tells us that entering God's presence isn't just vertical. It's not just personal between me and him, but it also is horizontal. It also involves others. It's related to stirring up love and good works, which in the most obvious terms means we have to actually get together. We can't stir up love and good works from a distance. Uh, You can't encourage each other by yourself, by nature. It's a one another thing. And verse 25 tells us this. we got to get together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some who've given up on this Jesus thing, but instead encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day of Christ, his return, drawing near. Which doesn't mean all the more frequent, because in the early church they were meeting together almost daily. What are we supposed to do? Hourly? It doesn't mean more frequent, but all the more important as we see the day of Christ drawing near, we need to not neglect meeting together, but instead meet together and encourage each other. Stir up love and good works. Now, thirdly, we need to talk about the context of entering God's presence. There's the confidence to enter. There's the call to enter it. But, but where is it? What's the context of, of this invitation to enter into his presence? Where do we draw near and hold fast our confession? Where do we stir up one another? 
It's actually not an easy question to answer, but it is important. It's multi-layered. The answer is multi-layered. You see, one way to understand these verses is that of realm transfer or access granted. And it's already happened. We already have God's presence through the blood of Christ. Verses 19 and 20 were very clear. It's past tense. We have access. We have entered. On the other hand, God's presence is something to be pursued in these verses, isn't it? Draw near. That's a command in verse 22. We have entered and we should draw near. And that responsibility to draw near should should bring to mind things like private worship, where we read our Bibles on our own and we talk to God about it. We pray to him, we bring requests to him. When we do these things, we're drawing near. And it should bring to mind the constancy of worship, where as we go throughout our day, we give thanks quickly for this thing. Maybe we get a chance to pray here. We think on him, we meditate on his words. We do any of those things throughout the day. We're drawing near to him. We should do it more frequently than we do. We should do it more thoughtfully, more passionately than we do. So it's, it's a process. We're growing in it. We should also think of family worship, where a family gets together around the Bible, and maybe they do some singing, maybe they do some prayer requests, maybe they just read and talk about it and talk to God about it. And what are they doing? They're drawing near to God together. You could also think of small groups, what we call community groups here. Or also various Bible studies, one-on-one discipleship, two people getting together to pray together. What are they doing? They are drawing near to the Lord because they have entered into his presence already through the blood of Christ. And just notice all the we and us words throughout these verses. Did you notice that? It began by saying brothers, plural. And it's then since we... And let us, and let us, and let us. You see, this is a call to a Christian community, not just a a random selection of individual Christians. This is a call to a Christian community. And verses 24 and 25 are explicitly focused on us with others and on us relating to others. Let's read them again, those verses. Verse 24 and 25 say, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So that relates to families. That relates to churches. That relates to community groups. And I think first and foremost, it relates to what we call corporate worship. This meeting of the church or our Lord's Supper service would be corporate worship, the whole church meeting together for worship in the presence of God. I think that's primarily, or maybe the first thing on the list that we should think of when we think of Hebrews 10 here. As we draw near together to God, we're drawing near like this. It's not the only thing that Hebrews 10 is talking about. We should also think of, yes, the realm transfer that we already have and the private worship we should do and and families getting around the Bible and prayer together and, and encouraging each other in smaller groups. But we should think about Sunday morning as well and perhaps top of the list. Isn't Sunday morning corporate worship the highest expression of drawing near to God together? 
It isn't Sunday morning corporate worship. The highest expression of holding fast our confession together, of stirring up love and meeting together. First Peter 2 talks about this kind of thing, something we already have and something we are pursuing. There Peter says, as you come to him, you see you're still coming to him. You're coming to him a living stone. You yourselves, plural, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple to be a royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see what Peter envisions here is that we're all as Christians individually like the temple of the old covenant where God dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 6 and other passages talk about that. Individual Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. In, in that sense, they're like temples, God's temple. And yet, we're like stones of the temple, made to go together. We're made to go together to make up a building, a human building, a metaphorical building for God's worship in God's presence. So when we come together, we do, in a sense, taste more of his presence and get more of his glory and goodness because it reverberates. It's not just us. More things are going on. Things are being exchanged. We're encouraging each other. We're tasting of God's goodness together. It's individual and corporate. And Hebrews 10 has that kind of thing in mind, that God inhabits the praises of his people, that he is in our midst. Like 1 Corinthians 14 says, we hope that if there are non-Christians here, that they would sense that God is in this place and they would join us in belief and worship. Look how Hebrews 12 talks about all this. Look over there. Hebrews 12 talks about what we have now and still what we pursue. And it puts it in the most lofty terms possible. Instead of looking back to the temple like Hebrews 10 did, and saying, it's like going into the Holy of Holies. Now Hebrews 12 looks forward and says, it's like heaven. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is true of every Christian. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Let's skip to verse 28. Here's a therefore. Therefore, because you already have come, you've come to heaven Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Every Christian in Christ has a foretaste of heaven. They're already with the angels. They're already before God. They're already among the elect of eternity. They've come to the place of Jesus' blood. Yeah, it's just so magnificent and lofty. You've already come, and therefore, keep coming. 
and keep coming with sacrifice, keep coming with worship, keep coming with reverence, and keep coming with awe. For our God is big. He's a consuming fire. Well, that's the biblical instruction on God's presence in Hebrews 10. For the rest of our time together this morning, I want to talk about some implications for Sunday mornings at Desert Springs Church. What are some implications for us? Well, here are some implications for all of us. One you could call priority. I think this passage speaks to the priority and the need for consistency in meeting together as God's people for God's presence in God's praise. It's a priority. There needs to be consistency. It's easy in our day to treat this as a very optional thing. If there's something better or pressing on the calendar, for a lot of Christian families, that other thing wins out over this meeting with the saints. But it's not just church that you're missing out on. You're missing out on God. You're missing out on a foretaste of heaven. And you say, foretaste of heaven, Ryan, you must think a lot of yourself or, or, or the music here or... No, no, no. It's not that I'm heavenly or Drew is heavenly or our music is heavenly or, you know, announcements are heavenly. No, 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 no. But Scripture tells us what this is. Scripture tells us what we have already and what we're pursuing together. We're pursuing God like it's a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth, a down payment on what's to come in the new heaven and the new earth. It's heavenly. Whether it's perceived or not, it's heavenly. It's a priority. It needs to be a priority over, well, I can't get specific for you, only you can, but probably kids' sports are the greatest competition for Sunday morning church these days. The world has no priority for church being on Sunday morning, and so they frequently schedule games on Sunday morning and practices on Sunday morning. And, and, uh, and the better your kids get, the more you're supposed to travel, right? So I, I got a son who's on two hockey teams, one of which travels almost every weekend to like Colorado or Texas or Arizona, but he doesn't go. It's a priority. It's a priority. Secondly, mindset. Motive. The motive here is to get more of God. Get more of God. We want to enter into the holy places. We get more of him. The mindset here is drawing near not just half-heartedly, or timidly, confidently, boldly, assured, not in ourselves, not because we had a good week, and so we feel the right to praise him. As we were singing, oh, praise him, oh, praise him, I was thinking of how God-less I can be. How many things I can do without thinking about him, without giving it to him, without praying about it. How... I can compartmentalize him to certain parts of my life. How, how comfortable I am with going sometimes hours without much of a thought or a prayer. That's amazing. And it's amazing that this guy can enter into the holy places. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And I can not only do it despite my sin because of Christ, but I can do it with confidence and full assurance Again, because of Christ. Another implication for us is that of others. Others. 
Yes, we meet together for our joy and really for our salvation so that we keep holding fast to the confession. And we meet together for God, yes, because he calls us to and we're to obey him, but we also meet together like this for others. That means that God may be saying to you today through Hebrews 10, that you don't have the luxury to come in here and meet with him on a Sunday morning and ignore everyone else but him. It's the horizontal and the vertical. They go together. We, we have to have one and the other. Hebrews 10 may also speak to the fact that you need more than Sunday morning. Maybe you need to be in a community group. We'd encourage it. You need something that a community group offers that we can't hear in a, a group of hundreds of people in one room. We, we can't simply share requests and be accountable to each other like you can in a community group. But, but Hebrews 10 is talking about that sort of thing. We have to have others in mind, whether it's in smaller groups or bigger groups, we still need to have others in mind. There should be an other-mindedness about our worship. And lastly, one implication for families with kids who are still at home and I said, lastly, like it's uh, a quick thing at the end of a sermon, it's not. I mean, lastly, like here's the big thing we've been waiting for. Here's the thing that really is driving why we're in Hebrews 10 this morning and why we're taking these couple of weeks to talk about uh, our direction and vision for Sunday mornings. Let's talk about families. If I can borrow a phrase from Jesus, I'll put it this way, let the children come. Let the children come. He said that in Mark 10. And there he wasn't speaking directly to this issue of children in corporate worship with their families. I'm borrowing it loosely. But when Jesus said that, he was welcoming children to his lap primarily as a lesson on salvation, on entering the kingdom. He said, you must become like one of these. So already there, there's a, a lesson for us that may imply it's not a bad thing, but a good thing to have kids around us in corporate worship. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom's like. Jesus said, that's how you got to be to enter the kingdom. And so when a, a frustrated parent takes out a crying child and you kind of roll your eyes, remember this, Jesus said, let the children come uh, so that we would have a insight into what Salvation's like and what it means to enter the kingdom. Remind yourself as you hear a kid cry that if you were just a bit younger, you would do the exact same thing, right? <laughs> Kids have just learned to not do it out loud. Or they do it out loud. They haven't learned to keep it in. We keep it in though, right? We still have all the wayward thoughts and boredoms and, and aggravations and itchiness and, and hunger. In some ways, we're like little children. But let them come. Why would we keep them from this meeting? Why would we keep them from this foretaste of heaven? Well, let me give you 12 other reasons. I'm not kidding. 12 other reasons for families together <laughs> in corporate worship. One, it is inferred or even assumed in the Bible. It's not explicit. I know it's not explicit. Keep your kids with you during Sunday morning. But neither are children's classes. Children's classes are not in the Bible. And by the way, anything I say this morning is not in competition with children's ministries here. We have them. We encourage them. We like them. We want you to do both and, not either or. Children, are they really in the worship services of the Bible? Well, 
in the New Testament letters, which were to be read first and foremost to those churches that they were addressed to, and to be read, no doubt, in their corporate meetings like this one. There, in Ephesians, Paul addressed children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He did it again in Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Obey them. Well, why did he address children and not say, Fathers, when you go home later, tell your kids that I said to obey you. You see, Paul assumed that kids would be there in the worship of the church. And he addressed them directly, not indirectly. That says something. I think that infers or even assumes in the Bible kids are with their parents in corporate worship. And if you say, well, of course they were. I mean, they didn't have iPads back then. They didn't have, they didn't have technology. They didn't have sound systems. Uh, there are a lot of things that are better now than back then. That's just one of them. They didn't think of children's ministry. Aha, we thought of it. Well, maybe. Or maybe it was more principled than that. Maybe they would have thought, what? Why would we put them there and not here? Again, it's a good thing to have both, but I think it's principled that kids were with their parents in corporate worship as we see in these two examples. Secondly, corporate worship is central to the life of the church. We've already seen that from Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. It's central to the life of the church. Also related to that is that prophetic pastoral preaching of the word is central to the ministry of worship in a local church. It's central to what we're doing here on a Sunday morning. We shouldn't neglect that with our kids. Thirdly, there's the transcendence of God and the gravity of his worship, which is uniquely captured in corporate worship like this. You see, there's something about the bigness of God and the loftiness of God. Uh, there should be a sense of awe that comes from tasting and seeing that he's good. We don't want kids to miss out on that. We want them to see it. There's a spiritual intensity and gravity about this, this meeting that can never be duplicated in children's ministry. And that's okay. That's not a critique of children's ministry. They do what they do, and they, they do it well here, I think. But, but it's not the same. And we should notice the differences. We should think about the differences. You see, there is no pin-drop silence that happens in a Sunday school class for kids. There is no being still and knowing that he is God. A Sunday school teacher may say, be still and know that he's God. Be still. It's not the same thing, though, is it? <laughs> A great little pamphlet on this whole topic has been written by John Piper. It's called The Family Together in God's Presence. We have some available today. We'll have more for you next week. There's some available at the Information Center and some available at the Children's Ministry uh, back there in, the, in that area. Here's a taste of what Piper says in this pamphlet. He says, there is a sense of solemnity and awe which children should experience in the presence of God. This is not likely to happen in children's church. Is there such a thing as children's thunder or children's lightning or the crashing of the sea for children? A deep sense of the unknown and the mysterious can rise in the soul of a sensitive child in solemn worship if his parents are going hard after God themselves. 
a deep moving of the magnificence of God can come to the young, tender heart through certain moments of great hymns or loud silence or authoritative preaching. These are of immeasurable value in the cultivation of a heart that fears and loves God. Relate to that is the fourth reason. There's a real need for kids to see mom and dad passionately pursuing God in worship. You see, there's an emotional engagement in corporate worship that isn't often uh, felt or seen in smaller groups like small groups, community groups, or Sunday school classes. Again, Piper says, kids should see how mom and dad sing praise to God with joy in their faces and how they listen hungrily to his word. They should catch the spirit of their parents meeting the living God. Something seems wrong when parents want to take their children in the formative years and put them with other children and other adults to form their attitude and behavior in worship. Parents should be jealous to model their children the tremendous value they put on reverence in the presence of Almighty God. Fifth, it's most consistent with the biblical principle that mom and dad are the chief responsibility bearers of a child's faith and growth, instruction. Your your Sunday school teachers for your kids are, are not the primary responsibility for your children's souls. You are. You are. It's a missed opportunity to, to not have them with you in this meeting when they're at an appropriate age. Sixth, all this rightly pushes against a, an increasing fragmentation of families in our culture, our broader culture. More and more, our family, we're going in different directions, right? I've got two kids with me. My wife has two kids with her. We're doing two different things at the same time. We're trying to put those together more and more, right? I'm sure you are as well. And here's a great opportunity to push against that culture of fragmentation of families to do this together and to talk about it afterwards. There's also the compartmentalization of ages in our culture, but the Bible talks about a unity and diversity of the local church where there's young and old and young are learning from the old. It's good to be an intergenerational church and it's good to have kids see that and be a part of it. Seventh, it teaches kids to participate in an adult world, a world that doesn't revolve around them, a world that's bigger than them, a world that's not all about them. It teaches them also that church is bigger than them. Eighth, it teaches kids, especially little ones, to sit still, to listen, to grow in perception and attention and understanding. It's a discipline opportunity in general. You might find that your kid does better in school if you had them with you on Sunday morning, helping them sit still, be quiet, listen, try to get things at the age-appropriate way, level. It's a good thing just for that. Ninth, it has a reciprocal or mutually serving relationship with family worship. You see, if your kids can't sit still here, it may be that you never have them sit still for Bible reading and prayer at home. 
A great way to practice for this is for, for you to practice in family worship together. And what is done here and what is missed here, like some things, yes, go over kids' heads, but those are opportunities to talk about it later on. You see, corporate worship feeds into the life of the family throughout the week. It feeds into family worship. The, the, the passage for Sunday can be part of Saturday's family worship. What number am I on? Ten. Ten, not all of our songs, not all of uh, what goes into a sermon will go over their heads. Not all will. They will get more than you probably think. Just ask someone who's done this for a number of years. They'll tell you story after story of a, a, one of their sons or daughters, you know, drawing throughout the sermon. They thought they got nothing. And then later they get home and, you know, the kid has some sort of great biblical insight because the, the preacher said it and they heard it. They get more than you think. Eleven, delaying their participation in corporate worship continues to feed kids' substitutes for corporate worship. And it's self-propagating. In other words, the longer you wait, the harder a transition will be. In the church I grew up in, we had children's church to fifth grade, and then you graduated and had to go to what we called big church and it was dreadful. You went from flannel graphs and crafts and excitement and entertainment and jokes and no sermon to boring hymns and a boring southern accent preacher guy. It was brutal. Here at Desert Springs, hopefully we're a little bit more entertaining than that, uh, than the church I grew up in. But, but, but notice this, that if you're a kid in this church, you could... You could almost get to 12th grade with scarcely ever doing this with the church. You could go all the way through. There's, we don't have a fifth grade graduation or something like that. You could go all the way through with almost never ever doing this until you're in college years. And by then, rather than being ready for adult worship, as you might call it, you may instead embrace campus ministry as an alternative to church, which Campus ministry is good, but it's not an alternative to church. Or you might eventually end up in a church that is the youth group equivalent of church. Some churches are just that, graduated youth groups. They were born out of a, uh, an entertainment-driven youth ministry culture. And when those people became adults, they said, what do we do? How do we do church? How, how do we make it? I know we'll entertain. We'll bring gizmos. We've, we've, got, we've got these things. We'll, 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 we'll dazzle them. You don't want your kids in that kind of a church, I don't think. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Don't wait. And lastly, 12, there's the cumulative effect, which is incalculable. Between the ages of 4 and 18, there are 780 Sundays. And if that sounds like a small number to you, then good. It should, it should remind you there's a finite number of Sundays, and you should use them well. If it sounds like a big number, 780 Sundays, then great. See it as a, a massive opportunity the Lord has placed before you for your parenting and for your kids. 
I know there are all kinds of objections you could have, and many do. You could say, well, my child can't sit, sit still that long, and I've already hinted at that. Work on it. Work on it. Seek help from others. Get practical advice. We'll do a blog post later this week that'll talk about some frequent concerns with this and, and give some practical advice for this and point you in the direction of some good resources. You might be thinking, well, my kids have been and they say they don't get anything out of it. They say it's boring. And I say, is that really the goal? Is that what we're after? It's not boring. Because if so, get rid of school. School's boring. Right? Teachers are boring. I mean, sitting for mom and dad to finish dinner, if you have that rule, like, no, 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 you don't get up, we get up together. That's boring. We don't decide what's good based on that. We, we shouldn't trust what our kids want or prefer for Sunday mornings, do we? We don't do that for food, for, for school, for money, for possessions. We, we know more than our kids, and so we tell them what we know, and we tell them what we want them to do because it's for their good. We should lead our kids in what is best for their spiritual life. You could say, well, it's a distraction for me. If I have my kid with me, I'm looking to my right all the time, and instead I want to come and I want to engage with God alone. And I say, well, that's great, but... Don't think that God has given you a, a, a temporary break in your parenting right here. In fact, he's given you an assignment. You don't get the break, at least not every Sunday. You might need a break. You might need a break in different ways, yes, but, but don't think this is your time, your break. You could say, well, I'm afraid others are going to be distracted by my kids. Well, yes, yeah, start at an age where they can start to sit still for more than a dozen minutes like I've said, practice at home. I know this isn't easy. I know it's a process. We've had four kids we've done this with. Well, I should clarify, my wife has done this with four kids. I'm always up here and she's down there with the kids. And anyway, it can be done, but I, I know it, 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 it needs work and, and thought and care and it's a process. If there is repeated distraction when the kids are very young, then take them out. Take them out in the foyer. Uh, you sit in a place that's convenient to do so. Uh, sitting in the back, I, there are added distractions for kids. There are a lot of heads in the way um, and a lot of distance between back there and up here. If you sit right there and your kids are really squirmy, it's really difficult for me, okay? Please don't. Uh, but to the sides, it's a great place to, to be. You're close to an exit. and <laughs> No one is here this Sunday, so I thought this is a great opportunity to say, you know what, if your kid's wallowing over there, right in there, that's, that's hard. That's hard on me. Uh, on and on I could go. Let me give you the testimony of um, one of our deacons, Greg Dart. Uh, he, it's a family that's had some sort of, you know, reformation in this. They didn't grow up doing this and, and, and embracing this, and so it would be a time where they came to embrace it. And I asked Greg for an endorsement on all this. He said, coming together in corporate worship as a family has been a bit of a winding road for us. At first, we didn't think our kids would be able to understand the teaching, and we were concerned that they might get burned out at a young age with church being so long. But the main thing that changed our hearts was the statistic of kids that never experience corporate worship and quickly leave church altogether when their youth group days are over. We quickly saw the benefits of coming to the main service as a family, then our boys also being taught on their own level in the youth ministry. 
We get to worship together and discuss the teaching afterwards. Our boys have embraced it as well and are truly blessed. And now we look forward to worshiping our Lord together as a family along with our DSC family. All this is caught and taught, isn't it? You want to begin to do this with your kids, regardless of their age? Tell them, and tell them again and again why we do this and why this is important. But it's also caught, isn't it? It's caught. Again, Piper says, These arguments will not carry much weight with parents who do not love to worship God. The greatest stumbling block for children in worship is that their parents do not cherish the hour. Children can feel the difference between duty and delight. Therefore, the first and most important job of a parent is to fall in love with the worship of God. You can't impart what you don't possess. So let's remember in all this, rather than a new program or, heaven forbid, a new law, the most important thing here is God's worship, God's people, in God's presence, for God's praise. Hebrews 10 told us, we've already come to Mount Zion. We've already come to the place of angels, the place of his blood, the presence of Jesus, to God, the judge himself. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's keep coming. Let's draw near week after week after week until the day comes. Let's pray. Well, Father, we pray for your help. We pray for wisdom as a church. We pray, Lord, for grace where we disagree with each other on how to do certain biblical principles that aren't exactly spelled out, at least explicitly. Give us grace. Give us humility. Give us conviction when we need that. Give us encouragement with each other. Help us to love each other and to encourage each other often. Lord, keep us meeting together. Help us not to neglect it, but to do it all the more and to make it all the more important as we see the day of Christ coming. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word, for your spirit at work in us. We thank you for each other. We thank you for your great, great plans and grand promises that are ours. We've already received them, and yet so much more is to come. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.